Chapter Three, Part One of the Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter Three, Part One. On the other point which is involved in the just equality of women, their admissibility to all the functions and occupations hitherto retained as the monopoly of the stronger sex, I would anticipate no difficulty in convincing any one who has gone with me on the subject of the equality of women in the family. I believe their disabilities elsewhere are only clung to in order to maintain their subordination in domestic life, because the generality of the male sex cannot yet tolerate the idea of living with an equal. Were it not for that, I think that almost every one, in the existing state of opinion in politics and political economy, would admit the injustice of excluding half the human race from the greater number of lucrative occupations, and from almost all high social functions, ordaining from their birth either that they are not, and cannot by any possibility become, fit for employments which are legally open to the stupidest and basest of the other sex, or else that however fit they may be, those employments should be interdicted to them, in order to be preserved for the exclusive benefit of males. In the last two centuries, when, which was seldom the case, any reason beyond the mere existence of the fact was thought to be required to justify the disabilities of women, people seldom assigned as a reason their inferior mental capacity, which in times when there was a real trial of personal faculties, from which all women were not excluded, in the struggles of public life, no one really believed in. The reason given in those days was not women's unfitness, but the interest of society, by which was meant the interest of men. Just as the reason d'etat, meaning the convenience of the government, and the support of existing authority, was deemed a sufficient explanation and excuse for the most flagitious crimes. In the present day power holds a smoother language, and whomsoever it oppresses always pretends to do so for their own good. Accordingly, when anything is forbidden to women, it is thought necessary to say, and desirable to believe, that they are incapable of doing it, and that they depart from their real path of success and happiness when they aspire to it. But to make this reason plausible, I do not say valid, those by whom it is urged must be prepared to carry it to a much greater length than anyone ventures to do in the face of present experience. It is not sufficient to maintain that women on the average are less gifted than men on the average, with certain of the higher mental faculties, or that a smaller number of women than of men are fit for occupations and functions of the highest intellectual character. It is necessary to maintain that no women at all are fit for them, and that the most eminent women are inferior in mental faculties to the most mediocre of the men on whom those functions at present devolve. For if the performance of the function is decided either by competition, or by any mode of choice which secures regard to the public interest, there needs be no apprehension that any important employments will fall into the hands of women inferior to average men, or to the average of their male competitors. The only result would be that there would be fewer women than men in such employments, a result certain to happen in any case, if only from the preference always likely to be felt by the majority of women for the one vocation in which there is nobody to compete with them. Now the most determined depreciator of women will not venture to deny that when we add the experience of recent times to that of ages past, women, and not a few merely, but many women, have proved themselves capable of everything, perhaps without a single exception, which is done by men, and of doing it successfully and credibly. The utmost that can be said is, that there are many things which none of them have succeeded in doing as well as they have been done by some men, many in which they have not reached the very highest rank, 
but there are extremely few, dependent only on mental faculties, in which they have not attained the rank next to the highest. Is not this enough, and much more than enough, to make it a tyranny to them, and a detriment to society, that they should not be allowed to compete with men for the exercise of these functions? Is it not a mere truism to say, that such functions are often filled by men far less fit for them than numbers of women, and who would be beaten by women in any fair field of competition? What difference does it make that there may be men somewhere, fully employed about other things, who may be still better qualified for the things in question than these women? Does not this take place in all competitions? Is there so great a superfluity of men fit for high duties, that society can afford to reject the service of any competent person? Are we so certain of always finding a man made to our hands for any duty or function of social importance which falls vacant, that we lose nothing by putting a ban upon one half of mankind, and refusing beforehand to make their faculties available, however distinguished they may be? And even if we could do without them, would it be consistent with justice to refuse them fair share of honor and distinction, or to deny them the equal moral right of all human beings to choose their occupation, short of injury to others, according to their own preferences, at their own risk? Nor is the injustice confined to them. It is shared by those who are in a position to benefit by their services. To ordain that any kind of persons shall not be physicians, or shall not be advocates, or shall not be members of Parliament, is to injure not them only, but all who employ physicians or advocates, or elect members of Parliament, and who are deprived of the stimulating effect of greater competition on the exertions of the competitors, as well as restricted to a narrower range of individual choice. It will perhaps be sufficient if I confine myself, in the details of my argument, to functions of a public nature, since, if I am successful as to those, it probably will be readily granted that women should be admissible to all other occupations to which it is at all material whether they are admitted or not. Here let me begin by marking out one function, broadly distinguished from all others, their right to which is entirely independent of any question which can be raised concerning their faculties. I mean the suffrage, both parliamentary and municipal. The right to share in the choice of those who are to exercise a public trust is altogether a distinct thing from that of competing for the trust itself. If no one could vote for a member of Parliament who was not fit to be a candidate, the government would be a narrow oligarchy indeed. To have a voice in choosing those by whom one is to be governed is a means of self-protection due to every one, though he were to remain forever excluded from the function of governing, and that women are considered fit to have such a choice may be presumed from the fact that the law already gives it to women in the most important of all cases to themselves, for the choice of the man who is to govern a woman to the end of life. It is always supposed to be voluntarily made by herself. In the case of election to public trusts, it is the business of constitutional law to surround the right of suffrage with all needful securities and limitations, but whatever securities are sufficient in the case of the male sex, no others need be required in the case of women. Under whatever conditions, and within whatever limits, men are admitted to the suffrage, there is not a shadow of justification for not admitting women under the same. The majority of women of any class are not likely to differ in political opinion from the majority of the men of the same class, unless the question be one in which the interests of women, as such, are in some way involved, and if they are so, women require the suffrage as their guarantee of just and equal consideration. This ought to be obvious even to those who coincide in no other of the doctrines for which I contend. Even if every woman were a wife, and if every wife ought to be a slave, all the more would these slaves stand in need of legal protection, and we know what legal protection the slaves have. 
where the laws are made by their masters. With regard to the fitness of women not only to participate in elections, but themselves to hold offices or practice professions involving important public responsibilities, I have already observed that this consideration is not essential to the practical question in dispute, since any woman who succeeds in an open profession proves by that very fact that she is qualified for it. And in the case of public offices, if the political system of the country is such as to exclude unfit men, it will equally exclude unfit women. While if it is not, there is no additional evil in the fact that the unfit persons whom it admits may be either women or men. As long, therefore, as it is acknowledged that even a few women may be fit for these duties, the laws which shut the door on those exceptions cannot be justified by any opinion which can be held respecting the capacities of women in general. But though this last consideration is not essential, it is far from being irrelevant. An unprejudiced view of it gives additional strength to the arguments against the disabilities of women, and reinforces them by high considerations of practical utility. Let us first make entire abstraction of all psychological considerations tending to show that any of the mental differences supposed to exist between men and women are but the natural effect of the differences in their education and circumstances, and indicate no radical difference, far less radical inferiority, of nature. Let us consider women only as they already are, or as they are known to have been, and the capacities with which they have already practically shown. What they have done, that at least, if nothing else, it is proved that they can do. When we consider how sedulously they are all trained away from, instead of being trained towards, any of the occupations or objects reserved for men, it is evident that I am taking a very humble ground for them, when I rest their case on what they have actually achieved. For, in this case, negative evidence is worth little, while any positive evidence is conclusive. It cannot be inferred to be impossible that a woman should be a Homer, or an Aristotle, or a Michelangelo, or a Beethoven, because no woman has yet actually produced works comparable to theirs in any of those lines of excellence. This negative fact at most leaves the question uncertain, and open to psychological discussion. But it is quite certain that a woman can be a Queen Elizabeth, or a Deborah, or a Joan of Arc, since this is not inference, but fact. Now it is a curious consideration that the only things which the existing law excludes women from doing are the things which they have proved that they are able to do. There is no law to prevent a woman from having written all the plays of Shakespeare, or composed all the operas of Mozart, but Queen Elizabeth or Queen Victoria, had they not inherited the throne, could not have been entrusted with the smallest of the political duties, of which the former showed herself equal to the greatest. If anything conclusive could be inferred from experience, without psychological analysis, it would be that the things which women are not allowed to do are the very ones for which they are peculiarly qualified, since their vocation for government has made its way and become conspicuous through the very few opportunities which have been given, while in the lines of distinction which apparently were freely open to them, they have by no means so eminently distinguished themselves. We know how small a number of reigning queens history presents in comparison with that of kings. Of this smaller number a far larger proportion have shown talents for the rule, though many of them have occupied the throne in difficult periods. It is remarkable, too, that they have, in a great number of instances, been distinguished by merits the most opposite to the imaginary and conventional character of women. They have been as much remarked for the firmness and vigor of their rule as for its intelligence. When, to queens and empresses, we add regents and viceroys of provinces, the list of women who have been eminent rulers of mankind swells to a great length. Footnote 1. Especially is this true if we take into consideration Asia as well as Europe. 
If a Hindu principality is strongly, vigilantly, and economically governed, if order is preserved without oppression, if cultivation is extending and the people prosperous, in three cases out of four that principality is under a woman's rule. This fact, to me an entirely unexpected one, I have collected from a long knowledge of Hindu governments. There are many such instances, for though, by Hindu institutions, a woman cannot reign, she is the legal regent of a kingdom during the minority of the heir, and minorities are frequent, the lives of the male rulers being so often prematurely terminated through the effect of inactivity and sensual excesses. When we consider that these princesses have never been seen in public, have never conversed with any man not of their own family, except from behind a curtain, that they do not read, and if they did there is no book in their languages which can give them the smallest instruction on political affairs, the example they afford of the natural capacity of women for government is very striking. End footnote. This fact is so undeniable that someone, long ago, tried to retort the argument and turned the admitted truth into an additional insult by saying that queens are better than kings, because under kings women govern, but under queens men. It may seem a waste of reasoning to argue against a bad joke, but such things do affect people's minds. And I have heard men quote this saying, with an air as if they thought that there was something in it. At any rate, it will serve as anything, else for a starting point in discussion. I say, then, that it is not true that under kings women govern. Such cases are entirely exceptional, and we kings have quite as often governed ill through the influence of male favorites as a female. When a king is governed by a woman merely through his amatory propensities, good government is not probable, though even then there are exceptions. But French history counts two kings who have voluntarily given the direction of affairs during many years, the one to his mother, the other to his sister. One of them, Charles the Seventh, was a mere boy, but in doing so he followed the intentions of his father, Louis the Eleventh, the ablest monarch of his age. The other, St. Louis, was the best, and one of the most vigorous rulers, since the time of Charlemagne. Both these princesses ruled in a manner hardly equaled by any prince among their contemporaries. The Emperor Charles V, the most politic prince of his time, who had as great a number of able men in his service as a ruler ever had, and was one of the least likely of all sovereigns to sacrifice his interest to personal feelings, made two princesses of his family successively governors of the Netherlands, and kept one or the other of them in that post during his whole life. They were afterwards succeeded by a third. Both ruled very successfully, and one of them, Margaret of Austria, as one of the ablest politicians of the age. So much for one side of the question, now as to the other. When it is said that under queens men govern, is the same meaning to be understood as when kings are said to be governed by women? Is it meant that queens choose as their instruments of government the associates of their personal pleasures? The case is rare, even with those who are as unscrupulous on the latter point as Catherine the Second, and it is not in these cases that the good government, alleged to arise from male influence, is to be found. If it be true, then, that the administration is in the hands of better men under a queen, than under an average king, it must be that queens have a superior capacity for choosing them, and women must be better qualified than men both for the position of sovereign and for that of chief minister, for the principal business of a prime minister is not to govern in person, but to find the fittest persons to conduct every department of public affairs. The more rapid insight into character, which is one of the admitted points of superiority in women over men, must certainly make them, with anything like parity of qualifications in other respects, more apt than men in that choice of instruments, which is nearly the most important business of every one who has had to do with governing mankind. Even the unprincipled Catherine de Medici, 
could feel the value of a Chancellor de l'Hôpital. But it is also true that most great queens have been great by their own talents for government, and have been well served precisely for that reason. They retain the supreme direction of affairs in their own hands, and if they listened to good advisers, they gave by that fact the strongest proof that their judgment fitted them for dealing with the great questions of government. Is it reasonable to think that those who are fit for the greater functions of politics are incapable of qualifying themselves for the less? Is there any reason in the nature of things that the wives and sisters of princes should, whenever called upon, be found as competent as the princes themselves to their business, but that the wives and sisters of statesmen and administrators and directors of companies and managers of public institutions should be unable to do what is done by their brothers and husbands? The real reason is plain enough. It is that princesses, being more raised above the generality of men by their rank than placed below them by their sex, have never been taught that it was improper for them to concern themselves with politics, but have been allowed to feel the liberal interest natural to any cultivated human being in the great transactions which took place around them, and in which they might be called upon to take a part. The ladies of reigning families are the only women who are allowed the same range of interests and freedom of development as men, and it is precisely in their case that there is not found to be any inferiority. Exactly where and in proportion as women's capacities for government have been tried, in that proportion have they been found adequate. This fact is in accordance with the best general conclusions which the world's imperfect experience seems as yet to suggest concerning the peculiar tendencies and aptitudes characteristic of women, as women have hitherto been. I do not say, as they will continue to be, for, as I have already said more than once, I consider it presumption in any one to pretend to decide what women are or are not, can or cannot be, by natural constitution. They have always hitherto been kept, as far as regards spontaneous development, in so unnatural a state that their nature cannot but have been greatly distorted and disguised, and no one can safely pronounce that if women's nature were left to choose its direction as freely as men's, and if no artificial bent were attempted to be given to it, except that required by the conditions of human society, and given to both sexes alike, there would be any material difference, or perhaps any difference at all, in the character and capacities which would unfold themselves. I shall presently show that even the least contestable of the differences which now exist are such as may very well have been produced merely by circumstances, without any difference of natural capacity. But looking at women as they are known in experience, it may be said of them, with more truth than belongs to most other generalizations on the subject, that the general bent of their talents is toward the practical. This statement is conformable to all the public history of women, in the present and the past. It is no less borne out by common and daily experience. Let us consider the special nature of the mental capacities most characteristic of a woman of talent. They are all of a kind which fits them for practice, and makes them tend towards it. What is meant by a woman's capacity of intuitive perception? It means a rapid and correct insight into present fact. It has nothing to do with general principles. Nobody ever perceived a scientific law of nature by intuition, nor arrived at a general rule of duty or prudence by it. These are results of slow and careful collection and comparison of experience, and neither the men nor the women of intuition usually shine in this department, unless, indeed, the experience necessary is such as they can acquire by themselves. For what is called their intuitive sagacity makes them peculiarly apt in gathering such general truths as can be collected from their individual means of observation. When, consequently, they chance to be as well provided as men are with the results of other people's experience, by reading and education, 
I use the word chance advisedly, for in respect to the knowledge that tends to fit them for the greater concerns of life, the only educated women are the self-educated. They are better furnished than men in general with the essential requisites of skillful and successful practice. Men who are much taught are apt to be deficient in the sense of present fact. They do not see, in the facts which they are called upon to deal with, what is really there, but what they have been taught to expect. This is seldom the case with women of any ability. Their capacity of intuition preserves them from it. With a quality of experience and of general faculties, a woman usually sees much more than a man of what is immediately before her. Now this sensibility to the present is the main quality on which the capacity for practice, as distinguished from theory, depends. To discover general principles belongs to the speculative faculty. To discern and discriminate the particular cases in which they are and are not applicable constitutes practical talent, and for this women as they now are have a peculiar aptitude. I admit that there can be no good practice without principles, and that the predominant place where quickness of observation holds among a woman's faculties makes her particularly apt to build over-hasty generalizations upon her own observation, though at the same time no less ready in rectifying those generalizations as her observation takes a wider range. But the corrective to this defect is access to the experience of the human race, general knowledge, exactly the thing which education can best supply. A woman's mistakes are specifically those of a clever self-educated man, who often sees what men trained in routine do not see, but falls into errors of want of knowing things which have long been known. Of course he has acquired much of the pre-existing knowledge, or he could not have got on at all, but what he knows of it he has picked up in fragments and at random, as women do. But this gravitation of women's minds to the present, to the real, to actual fact, while in its exclusiveness is a source of errors, is also a much useful counteractive of the contrary error. The principal and most characteristic aberration of speculative minds as such consists precisely in the deficiency of this lively perception and ever-present sense of objective fact. For want of this they often not only overlook the contradiction which outward facts oppose to their theories, but lose sight of the legitimate purpose of speculation altogether, and let their speculative faculties go astray into regions not peopled with real beings, animate or inanimate, even idealized, but with personified shadows created by the illusions of metaphysics or by the mere entanglement of words, and think these shadows the proper objects of the highest, the most transcendent philosophy. Hardly anything can be of greater value to a man of theory and speculation who employs himself not in collecting materials of knowledge by observation, but in working them up by processes of thought into comprehensive truths of science and laws of conduct, than to carry on his speculations in the companionship and under the criticism of a really superior woman. There is nothing comparable to it for keeping his thoughts within the limits of real things and the actual facts of nature. A woman seldom runs wild after an abstraction. The habitual direction of her mind to dealing with things as individuals, rather than in groups, and, what is closely connected with it, her more lively interest in the present feelings of persons, which makes her consider, first of all, in anything which claims to be applied to practice, in what manner persons will be affected by it, these two things make her extremely unlikely to put faith in any speculation which loses sight of individuals, and deals with things as if they existed for the benefit of some imaginary entity, some mere creation of the mind, not resolvable into the feelings of living beings. Women's thoughts are thus as useful in giving reality to those of thinking men, as men's thoughts in giving width and largeness to those of women. In depth, as distinguished from breadth, 
I greatly doubt if even now women compared with men are at any disadvantage. End of chapter 3, part 1「Chapter three, part two of the subjection of women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The subjection of women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter three, part two. If the existing mental characteristics of women are thus valuable even in aid of speculation, they are still more important when speculation has done its work for carrying out the results of speculation into practice. For the reasons already given, women are comparatively unlikely to fall into the common error of men, that of sticking to their rules in a case whose specialties either take it out of the class to which the rules are applicable, or require a special adaptation of them. Let us now consider another of the admitted superiorities of clever women, greater quickness of apprehension, is not this pre-eminently a quality which fits a person for practice? In action, everything continually depends upon deciding promptly. In speculation, nothing does. A mere thinker can wait, can take time to consider, can collect additional evidence. He is not obliged to complete his philosophy at once, lest the opportunity should go by. The power of drawing the best conclusion possible from insufficient data is not indeed useless in philosophy. The construction of a provisional hypothesis consistent with all known facts is often the needful basis for further inquiry. But this faculty is rather serviceable in philosophy than the main qualification for it. And for the auxiliary as well as for the main operation, the philosopher can allow himself any time he pleases. He is in no need of the capacity of doing rapidly what he does. What he rather needs is patience to work on slowly until imperfect lights have become perfect, and the conjecture has ripened into a theorem. For those, on the contrary, whose business is with the fugitive and perishable, with individual facts, not kinds of facts, rapidity of thought is a qualification next only in importance to the power of thought itself. He who has not his faculties under immediate command in the contingencies of action might as well not have them at all. He may be fit to criticize, but he is not fit to act. Now it is in this that women, and the men who are most like women, confessedly excel. The other sort of man, however preeminent may be his faculties, arrives slowly at complete command of them. Rapidity of judgment and promptitude of judicious action, even in the things he knows best, are the gradual and late result of strenuous effort grown into habit. It will be said, perhaps, that the greater nerves susceptibility of women is a disqualification for practice, in anything but domestic life, by rendering them mobile, changeable, too vehemently under the influence of the moment, incapable of dogged perseverance, unequal and uncertain in the power of using their faculties. I think that these phrases sum up the greater part of the objections commonly made to the fitness of women for the higher class of serious business. Much of all this is the mere overflow of nervous energy run to waste, and would cease when the energy was directed to a definite end. Much is also the result of conscious or unconscious cultivation, as we see by the almost total disappearance of hysterics and fainting fits since they have gone out of fashion. Moreover, when people are brought up, like many women of the higher classes, though less so in our own country than any other, 
a kind of hothouse plants, shielded from the wholesome vicissitudes of air and temperature, and untrained in any of the occupations and exercises which give stimulus and development to the circulatory and muscular system, while their nervous system, especially in its emotional department, is kept in unnatural active play, it is no wonder if those of them who do not die of consumption grow up with constitutions liable to derangement from slight causes, both internal and external, and without stamina to support any task, physical or mental, requiring continuity of effort. But women brought up to work for their livelihood show none of these morbid characteristics, unless indeed they are chained to an excess of sedentary work in confined and unhealthy rooms. Women who in their early years have shared in the healthful physical education and bodily freedom of their brothers, and who obtain a sufficiency of pure air and exercise in afterlife, very rarely have any excessive susceptibility of nerves which can disqualify them for active pursuits. There is indeed a certain proportion of persons, in both sexes, in whom an unusual degree of nervous sensibility is constitutional, and of so marked a character as to be the feature of their organization which exercises the greatest influence over the whole character of the vital phenomena. This constitution, like other physical conformations, is hereditary, and is transmitted to sons as well as daughters. But it is possible, and probable, that the nervous temperament, as it is called, is inherited by a greater number of women than of men. We will assume this as a fact. And let me then ask, are men of nervous temperament found to be unfit for the duties and pursuits usually followed by men? If not, why should women of the same temperament be unfit for them? The peculiarities of the temperament are, no doubt, within certain limits, an obstacle to success in some employments, though an aid to it in others. But when the occupation is suitable to the temperament, and sometimes even when it is unsuitable, the most brilliant examples of success are continually given by the men of high nervous sensibility. They are distinguished in their practical manifestations chiefly by this, that being susceptible of a higher degree of excitement than those of another physical constitution, their powers, when excited, differ more than in the case of other people from those shown in their ordinary state. They are raised, as it were, above themselves, and do things with ease which they are wholly incapable of at other times. But this lofty excitement is not, except in weak bodily constitutions, a mere flash which passes away immediately, leaving no permanent traces, and incompatible with persistent and steady pursuit of an object. It is the character of the nervous temperament to be capable of sustained excitement, holding out through long-continued efforts. It is what is meant by spirit. It is what makes the high-bred racehorse run without slackening speed till he drops down dead. It is what has enabled so many delicate women to maintain the most sublime constancy, not only at the stake, but through a long preliminary succession of mental and bodily tortures. It is evident that people of this temperament are particularly apt for what may be called the executive department of the leadership of mankind. They are the material of great orators, great preachers, impressive diffusers of moral influences. Their constitution might be deemed less favorable to the qualities required from a statesman in the cabinet or from a judge. It would be so if the consequence necessarily followed that because people are excitable they must always be in a state of excitement. But this is wholly a question of training. Strong feeling is the instrument and element of strong self-control, but it requires to be cultivated in that direction.
When it is, it forms not the heroes of impulse only, but those also of self-conquest. History and experience prove that the most passionate characters are the most fanatically rigid in their feelings of duty, when their passion has been trained to act in that direction. The judge who gives a just decision in a case where his feelings are intensely interested on the other side, derives from that same strength of feeling the determined sense of the obligation of justice which enables him to achieve this victory over himself. The capability of that lofty enthusiasm which takes the human being out of his everyday character reacts upon the daily character itself. His aspirations and powers, when he is in this exceptional state, become the type with which he compares, and by which he estimates, his sentiments and proceedings at other times, and his habitual purposes assume a character moulded by and assimilated to the moments of lofty excitement, although those, from the physical nature of a human being, can only be transient. Experience of races, as well as of individuals, does not show those of excitable temperament to be less fit, on the average, either for speculation or practice, than the more unexcitable. The French and the Italians are undoubtedly, by nature, more nervously excitable than the Teutonic races, and, compared at least with the English, they have a much greater habitual and daily emotional life. But have they been less great in science, in public business, in legal and judicial eminence, or in war? There is abundant evidence that the Greeks were of old, as their descendants and successors still are, one of the most excitable of the races of mankind. It is superfluous to ask what among the achievements of men they did not excel in. The Romans, probably, as an equally southern people, had the same original temperament, but the stern character of their national discipline, like that of the Spartans, made them an example of the opposite type of national character the greater strength of their natural feelings being chiefly apparent in the intensity which the same original temperament made it possible to give to the artificial. If these cases exemplify what a naturally excitable people may be made, the Irish Celts afford one of the aptest examples of what they are when left to themselves. If those can be said to be left to themselves who have been for centuries under the indirect influence of bad government, and the direct training of a Catholic hierarchy, and of a sincere belief in the Catholic religion. The Irish character must be considered, therefore, as an unfavourable case. Yet, whenever the circumstances of the individual have been at all favourable, what people have shown greater capacity for the most varied and multifarious individual eminence? Like the French compared with the English, the Irish with the Swiss, the Greeks or Italians compared with the German races, so women compared with men may be found, on the average, to do the same things with some variety in the particular kind of excellence, but that they would do them fully as well on the whole, if their education and cultivation were adapted to correcting, instead of aggravating, the infirmities incident to their temperament, I see not the smallest reason to doubt. Supposing it, however, to be true that women's minds are by nature more mobile than those of men, less capable of persisting long in the same continuous effort, more fitted for dividing their faculties among many things than for travelling in any one path to the highest point which can be reached by it. This may be true of women, as they now are, though not without great and numerous exceptions, 
and may account for their having remained behind the highest order of men in precisely the things in which this absorption of the whole mind in one set of ideas and occupations may seem to be most requisite. Still, this difference is one which can only affect the kind of excellence, not the excellence itself, or its practical worth. And it remains to be shown whether this exclusive working of a part of the mind, this absorption of the whole thinking faculty in a single subject, and concentration of it on a single work, is the normal and healthful condition of the human faculties, even for speculative uses. I believe that what is gained in special development by this concentration is lost in the capacity of the mind for the other purposes of life, and even in abstract thought it is my decided opinion that the mind does more by frequently returning to a difficult problem than by sticking to it without interruption. For the purposes, at all events, of practice, from its highest to its humblest departments, the capacity of passing promptly from one subject of consideration to another, without letting the active spring of the intellect run down between the two, is a power far more valuable. And this power women preeminently possess, by virtue of the very mobility of which they are accused. They perhaps have it from nature, but they certainly have it by training and education, for nearly the whole of the occupations of women consist in the management of small but multitudinous details, on each of which the mind cannot dwell even for a minute, but must pass on to other things, and if anything requires longer thought, must steal time at odd moments for thinking of it. The capacity indeed which women show for doing their thinking in circumstances and at times which almost any man would make an excuse to himself for not attempting it, has often been noticed, and a woman's mind, though it may be occupied only with small things, can hardly ever permit itself to be vacant, as a man's so often is, when not engaged in what he chooses to consider the business of his life. The business of a woman's ordinary life is things in general, and can as little cease to go on as the world to go round. But, it is said, there is anatomical evidence of the superior mental capacity of men compared with women they have a larger brain. I reply that in the first place the fact itself is doubtful. It is by no means established that the brain of a woman is smaller than that of a man. If it is inferred merely because a woman's bodily frame generally is of less dimensions than a man's, this criterion would lead to strange consequences. A tall and large-boned man must on this showing be wonderfully superior in intelligence to a small man, and an elephant or a whale must prodigiously excel mankind. The size of the brain in human beings, anatomists say, varies much less than the size of the body, or even of the head, and the one cannot be at all inferred from the other. It is certain that some women have as large a brain as any man. It is within my knowledge that a man who had weighed many human brains said that the heaviest he knew of, heavier even than Cuvier's, the heaviest previously recorded, was that of a woman. Next, I must observe that the precise relation which exists between the brain and the intellectual powers is not yet well understood, but is a subject of great dispute. That there is a very close relation we cannot doubt. The brain is certainly the material organ of thought and feeling, and, making abstraction of the great unsettled controversy respecting the appropriation of different parts of the brain to different mental faculties, I admit that it would be an anomaly 
and an exception to all we know of the general laws of life and organization, if the size of the organ were wholly indifferent to the function, if no accession of power were derived from the great magnitude of the instrument. But the exception and the anomaly would be fully as great if the organ exercised influence by its magnitude only. In all the more delicate operations of nature, of which those of the animated creation are the most delicate, and those of the nervous system by far the most delicate of these, differences in the effect depend as much on differences of quality in the physical agents as on their quantity. And if the quality of an instrument is to be tested by the nicety and delicacy of the work it can do, the indications point to a greater average fineness of quality in the brain and nervous system of women than of men. This missing abstract difference of quality, a thing difficult to verify, the efficiency of an organ is known to depend not solely on its size, but on its activity. And of this we have an approximate measure in the energy with which the blood circulates through it, both the stimulus and the reparative force being mainly dependent on the circulation. It would not be surprising, it is indeed a hypothesis which accords well with the differences actually observed between the mental operations of the two sexes. If men on the average should have the advantage in the size of the brain, and women in activity of cerebral circulation. The results which conjecture, founded on analogy, would lead us to expect from this difference of organization, would correspond to some of those which we most commonly see. In the first place, the mental operations of men might be expected to be slower. They would neither be so prompt as women in thinking, nor so quick to feel. Large bodies take more time to get into full action. On the other hand, when once got thoroughly into play, men's brain would bear more work. It would be more persistent in the line first taken. It would have more difficulty in changing from one mode of action to another, but, in the one thing it was doing, it could go on longer without loss of power or sense of fatigue. And do we not find that the things in which men most excel women are those which require most plodding and long hammering at a single thought, while women do best what must be done rapidly? A woman's brain is sooner fatigued, sooner exhausted, but given the degree of exhaustion we should expect to find that it would recover itself sooner." I repeat that this speculation is entirely hypothetical. It pretends to no more than to suggest a line of inquiry. I have before repudiated the notion of its being yet certainly known that there is any natural difference at all in the average strength or direction of the mental capacities of the two sexes, much less what that difference is. Nor is it possible that this should be known, so long as the psychological laws of the formation of character have been so little studied even in a general way, and in the particular case never scientifically applied at all, so long as the most obvious external causes of difference of character are habitually disregarded, left unnoticed by the observer, and looked down upon with a kind of supercilious contempt by the prevalent schools both of natural history and of mental philosophy, who, whether they look for the source of what mainly distinguishes human beings from one another in the world of matter or in that of spirit, agree in running down those who prefer to explain these differences by the different relations of human beings to society and life. To so ridiculous an extent are the notions formed of the nature of women, mere empirical generalizations, framed without philosophy or analysis, upon the first instances which present themselves, 
that the popular idea of it is different in different countries, according as the opinions and social circumstances of the country have given to the women living in it any specialty of development or non-development. An Oriental thinks that women are by nature peculiarly voluptuous. See the violent abuse of them on this ground in Hindu writings. An Englishman usually thinks that they are by nature cold. The sayings about women's fickleness are mostly of French origin. From the famous distich of Francis I, upward and downward. In England it is a common remark how much more constant women are than men. Inconstancy has been longer reckoned discreditable to a woman in England than in France, and English women are besides, in their inmost nature, much more subdued to opinion. It may be remarked, by the way, that Englishmen are in peculiarly unfavourable circumstances for attempting to judge what is or is not natural, not merely to women, but to men, or to human beings altogether, at least if they have only English experience to go upon because there is no place where human nature shows so little of its original lineaments. Both in a good and a bad sense, the English are farther from a state of nature than any other modern people. They are, more than any other people, a product of civilization and discipline. England is the country in which social discipline has most succeeded, not so much in conquering, as in suppressing whatever is liable to conflict with it. The English, more than any other people, not only act, but feel according to rule. In other countries, the taught opinion, or their requirement of society, may be the stronger power, but the promptings of the individual nature are always visible under it, and often resisting it. Rule may be stronger than nature, but nature is still there. In England, rule has to a great degree substituted itself for nature. The greater part of life is carried on not by following inclination under the control of rule, but by having no inclination but that of following a rule. Now this has its good side, doubtless, though it has also a wretchedly bad one, but it must render an Englishman peculiarly ill-qualified to pass a judgment on the original tendencies of human nature from his own experience. The errors to which observers elsewhere are liable on the subject are of a different character. An Englishman is ignorant respecting human nature. A Frenchman is prejudiced. An Englishman's errors are negative, a Frenchman's positive. An Englishman fancies that things do not exist because he never sees them. A Frenchman thinks they must always and necessarily exist because he does see them. An Englishman does not know nature because he has had no opportunity of observing it. A Frenchman generally knows a great deal of it, but often mistakes it, because he has only seen it sophisticated and distorted. For the artificial state, superinduced by society, disguises the natural tendencies of the thing which is the subject of observation in two different ways, by extinguishing the nature or by transforming it. In the one case there is but a starved residuum of nature remaining to be studied. In the other case there is much, but it may have expanded in any direction rather than that in which it would spontaneously grow. I have said that it cannot now be known how much of the existing mental differences between men and women is natural and how much artificial, whether there are any natural differences at all, or, supposing all artificial causes of differences to be withdrawn, what natural character would be revealed. I am not about to attempt what I have pronounced impossible, 
but doubt does not forbid conjecture, and where certainty is unattainable there may yet be the means of arriving at some degree of probability. The first point, the origin of the differences actually observed, is the one most accessible to speculation, and I shall attempt to approach it by the only path by which it can be reached, by tracing the mental consequences of external influences. We cannot isolate a human being from the circumstances of his condition, so as to ascertain experimentally what he would have been by nature, but we can consider what he is, and what his circumstances have been, and whether the one would have been capable of producing the other. Let us take, then, the only marked case which observation affords of apparent inferiority of women to men, if we accept the merely physical one of bodily strength. No production in philosophy, science, or art, entitled to the first rank, has been the work of a woman. Is there any mode of accounting for this, without supposing that women are naturally incapable of producing them? In the first place, we may fairly question whether experience has afforded sufficient grounds for an induction. It is scarcely three generations since women, saving very rare exceptions, have begun to try their capacity in philosophy, science, or art. It is only in the present generation that their attempts have been at all numerous, and they are even now extremely few everywhere but in England and France. It is a relevant question whether a mind possessing the requisites of first-rate eminence in speculation or creative art could have been expected, on the mere calculation of chances, to turn up during that lapse of time among the women whose tastes and personal position admitted of their devoting themselves to these pursuits. In all things which there has yet been time for, in all but the very highest grades in the scale of excellence, especially in the department in which they have been longest engaged, literature, both prose and poetry, women have done quite as much, have obtained fully as high prizes and as many of them, as could be expected from the length of time and the number of competitors. If we go back to the earlier period, when very few women made the attempt, yet some of those few made it with distinguished success. The Greeks always accounted Sappho among their great poets, and we may well suppose that Myrtis, said to have been the teacher of Pindar, and Corina, who five times bore away from him the prize of poetry, must at least have had sufficient merit to admit of being compared with that great name. Aspasia did not leave any philosophical writings, but it is an admitted fact that Socrates resorted to her for instruction, and avowed himself to have obtained it. If we consider the works of women in modern times, and contrast them with those of men, either in the literary or the artistic department, such inferiority as may be observed resolves itself essentially into one thing, but that is a most material one. Deficiency of originality. Not total deficiency, for every production of mind which is of any substantive value has an originality of its own. Is a conception of the mind itself, not a copy of something else. Thoughts original, in the sense of being unborrowed, of being derived from the thinker's own observations or intellectual processes, are abundant in the writings of women. But they have not yet produced any of those great and luminous new ideas which form an era in thought, nor those fundamentally new conceptions in art which open a vista of possible effects not before thought of, and found a new school. Their compositions are mostly grounded on the existing fund of thought, and their creations do not deviate widely from existing types. This is the sort of inferiority which their works manifest. 
foreign point of execution, in the detailed application of thought and the perfection of style, there is no inferiority. Our best novelists in point of composition and of the management of detail have mostly been women, and there is not in all modern literature a more eloquent vehicle of thought than the style of Madame de Stael, nor as a specimen of purely artistic excellence anything superior to the prose of Madame Sand, whose style acts upon the nervous system like a symphony of Haydn or Mozart. High originality of conception is, as I have said, what is chiefly wanting. And now to examine if there is any manner in which this deficiency can be accounted for. Let us remember, then, so far as regards mere thought, that during all that period in the world's existence, and in the progress of cultivation, in which great and fruitful new truths could be arrived at by mere force of genius, with little precious study and accumulation of knowledge, during all that time women did not concern themselves with speculation at all. From the days of Hypatia to those of the Reformation, the illustrious Heloisa is almost the only woman to whom any such achievement might have been possible, and we know not how great a capacity of speculation in her may have been lost to mankind by the misfortunes of her life. Never since any considerable number of women have begun to cultivate serious thought has originality been possible on easy terms. Nearly all the thoughts which can be reached by mere strength of original faculties have long since been arrived at, and originality, in any high sense of the word, is now scarcely ever attained but by minds which have undergone elaborate discipline, and are deeply versed in the results of previous thinking. It is Mr. Maurice, I think, who has remarked on the present age that its most original thinkers are those who have known most thoroughly what had been thought by their predecessors and this will always henceforth be the case. Every fresh stone in the edifice has now to be placed on the top of so many others, that a long process of climbing and of carrying up materials has to be gone through by whoever aspires to take a share in the present stage of the work. How many women are there who have gone through any such process? Mrs. Somerville, alone perhaps of women, knows as much of mathematics as is now needful for making any considerable mathematical discovery. Is it any proof of inferiority in women that she has not happened to be one of the two or three persons who in her lifetime have associated their names with some striking advancement of the science? Two women, since political economy has been made a science, have known enough of it to write usefully on the subject. Of how many of the innumerable men who have written on it during the same time is it possible with truth to say more? If no woman has hitherto been a great historian, what woman has had the necessary erudition? If no woman is a great philologist, what woman has studied Sanskrit and Slavonic, the Gothic of Ulfila and the Persic of the Sendavesta? Even in practical matters we all know what is the value of the originality of untaught geniuses. It means inventing over again in its rudimentary form something already invented and improved upon by many successive inventors. When women have had the preparation which all men now require to be eminently original, it will be time enough to begin judging by experience of their capacity for originality. It no doubt often happens that a person who has not widely and accurately studied the thoughts of others on a subject has by natural sagacity a happy intuition, which he can suggest but cannot prove, which yet, 
when matured, may be an important addition to knowledge. But even then, no justice can be done to it until some other person, who does possess the previous acquirements, takes it in hand, tests it, gives it a scientific or practical form, and fits it into its place among the existing truths of philosophy or science. Is it supposed that such felicitous thoughts do not occur to women? They occur by hundreds to every woman of intellect. But they are mostly lost, for want of a husband or friend who has the other knowledge which can enable him to estimate them properly and bring them before the world, and even when they are brought before it, they generally appear as his ideas, not their real authors. Who can tell how many of the most original thoughts put forth by male writers belong to a woman by suggestion, to themselves only by verifying and working out? If I may judge by my own case, a very large proportion indeed. End of chapter 3, part 2Chapter 3, Part 3 of The Subjection of Women. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corrie Samuel. The Subjection of Women by John Stuart Mill. Chapter 3, Part 3. If we turn from pure speculation to literature in the narrow sense of the term, and the fine arts. There is a very obvious reason why women's literature is, in its general conception and in its main features, an imitation of men's. Why is the Roman literature, as critics proclaim to satiety, not original, but an imitation of the Greek? Simply because the Greeks came first. If women lived in a different country from men, and had never read any of their writings, they would have had a literature of their own, as it is, they have not created one, because they found a highly advanced literature already created. If there had been no suspension of the knowledge of antiquity, or if the Renaissance had occurred before the Gothic cathedrals were built, they never would have been built. We see that, in France and Italy, imitation of the ancient literature stopped the original development even after it had commenced. All women who write are pupils of the great male writers. A painter's early pictures, even if he be a Raffaello, are undistinguishable in style from those of his master. Even a Mozart does not display his powerful originality in his earliest pieces. What years are to a gifted individual, generations are to a mass. If women's literature is destined to have a different collective character from that of men, depending on any difference of natural tendencies, much longer time is necessary than has yet elapsed, before it can emancipate itself from the influence of accepted models, and guide itself by its own impulses. But if, as I believe, there will not prove to be any natural tendencies common to women, and distinguishing their genius from that of men, yet every individual writer among them has her individual tendencies, which at present are still subdued by the influence of precedent and example, and it will require generations more before their individuality is sufficiently developed to make head against that influence. It is in the fine arts, properly so called, that the prima facie evidence of inferior original powers in women at first sight appears the strongest, 
since opinion, it may be said, does not exclude them from these, but rather encourages them, and their education, instead of passing over this department, is in the affluent classes mainly composed of it. Yet in this line of exertion they have fallen still more short than in many others of the highest eminence attained by men. This shortcoming, however, needs no other explanation than the familiar fact, more universally true in the fine arts than in anything else, the vast superiority of professional persons over amateurs. Women in the educated classes are almost universally taught, more or less, of some branch or other of the fine arts, but not that they may gain their living or their social consequence by it. Women artists are all amateurs. The exceptions are only of the kind which confirm the general truth. Women are taught music, but not for the purpose of composing, only of executing it, and accordingly it is only as composers that men in music are superior to women. The only one of the fine arts which women do follow, to any extent, as a profession, and an occupation for life, is the histrionic, and in that they are confessedly equal, if not superior, to men. To make the comparison fair, it should be made between the productions of women in any branch of art, and those of men not following it as a profession. In musical composition, for example, women surely have produced fully as good things as have ever been produced by male amateurs. There are now a few women, a very few, who practice painting as a profession, and these are already beginning to show quite as much talent as could be expected. Even male painters, Pache Mr. Ruskin, have not made any very remarkable figure these last centuries, and it will be long before they do so. The reason why the old painters were so greatly superior to the modern is that a greatly superior class of men applied themselves to the art. In the fourteenth and fifteenth centuries, the Italian painters were the most accomplished men of their age. The greatest of them were men of encyclopedical achievements and powers like the great men of Greece. But in their times fine art was, to men's feelings and conceptions, among the grandest things in which a human being could excel, and by it men were made, what only political or military distinction now makes them, the companions of sovereigns and the equals of the highest nobility. In the present age, men of anything like similar calibre find something more important to do, for their own fame and the uses of the modern world, than painting. And it is only now and then that a Reynolds or a Turner of whose relative rank among eminent men I do not pretend to an opinion, applies himself to that art. Music belongs to a different order of things. It does not require the same general powers of mind, but seems more dependent on a natural gift, and it may be thought surprising that no one of the great musical composers has been a woman. But even this natural gift, to be made available for great creations, requires study and professional devotion to the pursuit. The only countries which have produced first-rate composers, even of the male sex, are Germany and Italy, countries in which, both in point of special and of general cultivation, women have remained far behind France and England, being generally, it may be said without exaggeration, very little educated, and having scarcely cultivated at all any of the higher faculties of mind. And in those countries, the men who are acquainted with the principles of musical composition must be counted by hundreds, or more probably by thousands, 
the women barely by scores, so that here again, on the doctrine of averages, we cannot reasonably expect to see more than one eminent woman to fifty eminent men, and the last three centuries have not produced fifty eminent male composers, either in Germany or in Italy. There are other reasons, besides those which we have now given, that help to explain why women remain behind men, even in the pursuits which are open to both. For one thing, very few women have time for them. This may seem a paradox. It is an undoubted social fact. The time and thoughts of every woman have to satisfy great previous demands on them for things practical. There is, first, the superintendence of the family and the domestic expenditure, which occupies at least one woman in every family, generally the one of mature years and acquired experience, unless the family is so rich as to admit of delegating that task to hired agency, and submitting to all the waste and malversation inseparable from that mode of conducting it. The superintendence of a household, even when not in other respects laborious, is extremely onerous to the thoughts. It requires incessant vigilance, an eye which no detail escapes, and presents questions for consideration and solution, foreseen and unforeseen, at every hour of the day, from which the person responsible for them can hardly ever shake herself free. If a woman is of a rank and circumstances which relieve her in a measure from these cares, she has still devolving on her the management for the whole family of its intercourse with others, of what is called society, and the less the call made on her by the former duty, the greater is always the development of the latter, the dinner-parties, concerts, evening-parties, morning visits, letter-writing, and all that goes with them. All this is over and above the engrossing duty which society imposes exclusively on women, of making themselves charming. A clever woman of the higher ranks finds nearly a sufficient employment of her talents in cultivating the graces of manner and the arts of conversation. To look only at the outward side of the subject, the great and continual exercise of thought which all women who address any value to dressing well, I do not mean expensively, but with taste, and perception of natural and of artificial convenience, must bestow upon their own dress perhaps also upon that of their daughters, would alone go a great way towards achieving respectable results in art, or science, or literature, and does actually exhaust much of the time and mental power they might have to spare for either. If it were possible that all this number of little practical interests, which are made great to them, should leave them either much leisure, or much energy and freedom of mind, to be devoted to art or speculation, they must have a much greater original supply of active faculty than the vast majority of men. But this is not all. Independently of the regular offices of life which devolve upon a woman, she is expected to have her time and faculties always at the disposal of everybody. If a man has not a profession to exempt him from such demands, still, if he has a pursuit, he offends nobody by devoting his time to it. Occupation is received as a valid excuse for his not answering to every casual demand which may be made on him. Are a woman's occupations, especially her chosen and voluntary ones, ever regarded as excusing her from any of what are termed the calls of society? Scarcely are her most necessary and recognised duties allowed as an exemption. It requires an illness in the family, or something else out of the common way, 
to entitle her to give her own business the precedence over other people's amusement. She must always be at the beck and call of somebody, generally of everybody. If she has a study or a pursuit, she must snatch any short interval which accidentally occurs to be employed in it. A celebrated woman, in a work which I hope will some day be published, remarks truly that everything a woman does is done at odd times. Is it wonderful, then, if she does not attain the highest eminence in things which require consecutive attention, and the concentration on them of the chief interest of life? Such is philosophy, and such, above all, is art, in which, besides the devotion of the thoughts and feelings, the hand must also be kept in constant exercises to attain high skill. There is another consideration to be added to all these. In the various arts and intellectual occupations, there is a degree of proficiency sufficient for living by it, and there is a higher degree on which depend the great productions which immortalize a name. To the attainment of the former, there are adequate motives in the case of all who follow the pursuit professionally. The other is hardly ever attained where there is not, or where there has not been at some period of life, an ardent desire of celebrity. Nothing less is commonly a sufficient stimulus to undergo the long and patient drudgery, which, in the case even of the greatest natural gifts, is absolutely required for great eminence in pursuits in which we already possess so many splendid memorials of the highest genius. Now, whether the cause be natural or artificial, women seldom have this eagerness for fame. Their ambition is generally confined within narrower bounds. The influence they seek is over those who immediately surround them. Their desire is to be liked, loved, or admired by those whom they see with their eyes, and the proficiency in knowledge, arts, and accomplishments, which is sufficient for that, almost always contents them. This is a trait of character which cannot be left out of the account in judging of women as they are. I do not at all believe that it is inherent in women. It is only the natural result of their circumstances. The love of fame in men is encouraged by education and opinion. To scorn delights and live laborious days, for its sake, is accounted the part of noble minds, even if spoke of as their last infirmity, and is stimulated by the access which fame gives to all objects of ambition, including even the favour of women while to women themselves all these objects are closed, and the desire of fame itself considered daring and unfeminine. Besides, how could it be that a woman's interests should not all be concentrated upon the impressions made on those who come into her daily life, when society has ordained that all her duties should be to them, and has contrived that all her comforts should depend on them? The natural desire of consideration from our fellow-creatures is as strong in a woman as in a man, but society has so ordered things that public consideration is, in all ordinary cases, only attainable by her through the consideration of her husband or of her male relations, while her private consideration is forfeited by making herself individually prominent, or appearing in any other character than that of an appendage to men. Whoever is in the least capable of estimating the influence on the mind of the entire domestic and social position, and the whole habit of a life, must easily recognise in that influence a complete explanation of nearly all the apparent differences between women and men, including the whole of those which imply any inferiority. 
as for moral differences, considered as distinguished from intellectual, the distinction commonly drawn is to the advantage of women. They are declared to be better than men, an empty compliment, which must provoke a bitter smile from every woman of spirit, since there is no other situation in life in which it is the established order, and considered quite natural and suitable, that the better should obey the worse. If this piece of idle talk is good for anything, it is only as an admission by men of the corrupting influence of power, for that is certainly the only truth which the fact, if it be a fact, either proves or illustrates. And it is true that servitude, except when it actually brutalizes, though corrupting to both, is less so to the slaves than to the slave-masters. It is wholesomer for the moral nature to be restrained, even by arbitrary power, than to be allowed to exercise arbitrary power without restraint. Women, it is said, seldomer fall under the penal law, contribute a much smaller number of offenders to the criminal calendar than men. I doubt not that the same thing may be said, with the same truth, of negro slaves. Those who are under the control of others cannot often commit crimes, unless at the command and for the purposes of their masters. I do not know of a more signal instance of the blindness with which the world, including the herd of studious men, ignore and pass over all the influences of social circumstances than their silly depreciation of the intellectual and silly panegyrics on the moral nature of women. The complimentary dictum about women's superior moral goodness may be allowed to pair off with a disparaging one respecting their greater liability to moral bias. Women, we are told, are not capable of resisting their personal partialities. Their judgment in grave affairs is warped by their sympathies and antipathies. Assuming it to be so, it is still to be proved that women are oftener misled by their personal feelings than men by their personal interests. The chief difference would seem in that case to be that men are led from the course of duty and the public interest by their regard for themselves, women, not being allowed to have private interests of their own, by their regard for somebody else. It is also to be considered that all the education which women receive from society inculcates on them the feeling that the individuals concerned with them are the only ones to whom they owe any duty, the only ones whose interest they are called upon to care for, while, as far as education is concerned, they are left strangers even to the elementary ideas which are presupposed in any intelligent regard for larger interests or higher moral objects. The complaint against them resolves itself merely into this, that they fulfil only too faithfully the sole duty which they are taught, and almost the only one which they are permitted to practise. The concessions of the privileged to the unprivileged are so seldom brought about by any better motive than the power of the unprivileged to extort them, that any arguments against the prerogative of sex are likely to be little attended to by the generality as long as they are able to say to themselves that women do not complain of it. That fact certainly enables men to retain the unjust privilege some time longer, but does not render it less unjust. Exactly the same thing may be said of the women in the harem of an Oriental. They do not complain of not being allowed the freedom of European women. They think our women insufferably bold and unfeminine. How rarely it is that even men complain of the general order of society, and how much rarer still would such complaint be if they did not know of any different order existing anywhere else. 
women do not complain of the general lot of women, or rather they do, for plaintive elegies on it are very common in the writings of women, and were still more so as long as the lamentations could not be suspected of having any practical object. Their complaints are like the complaints which men make of the general unsatisfactoriness of human life. They are not meant to imply blame, or to plead for any change. But though women do not complain of the power of husbands, each complains of her own husband, or of the husbands of her friends. It is the same in all other cases of servitude, at least in the commencement of the emancipatory movement. The serfs did not at first complain of the power of their lords, but only of their tyranny. The commons began by claiming a few municipal privileges. They next asked an exemption for themselves from being taxed without their own consent, but they would at that time have thought it a great presumption to claim any share in the king's sovereign authority. The case of women is now the only case in which to rebel against established rules is still looked upon with the same eyes as was formerly a subject's claim to the right of rebelling against his king. A woman who joins in any movement which her husband disapproves makes herself a martyr, without even being able to be an apostle, for the husband can legally put a stop to her apostleship. Women cannot be expected to devote themselves to the emancipation of women until men in considerable number are prepared to join with them in the undertaking. End of chapter 3, part 3